A little bit of context before we start our reading. We are in the second half of Mark's Gospel. The second half kicked off decisively in the middle of chapter 8 when Jesus gathered his disciples together and asked, Who do people say that I am? And after running through a few dead-end options from the crowd, he turns to the disciples themselves. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Messiah. That's the turning point, the hinge of Mark's Gospel. Up until this point, the real issue has been, who is Jesus? What is his identity? From here, the trajectory is towards the cross. Almost immediately, Jesus starts to talk about his death, chapter 8, 31. And Peter, on behalf, we assume, of all of the disciples, reacts in a very negative way. No, that won't happen. Jesus is having none of it. Because that is where the story in Mark's Gospel is now going. Jesus is going towards the cross. In chapter 9, last week, we had a, what seems like a bit of a respite on the way to the cross. Jesus takes Peter, James and John up a mountain and he is visibly glorified Elijah and Moses appear and talk to him but actually the episode, although it serves to underline Jesus' identity as the glorious son of God, also serves to highlight the fact that the disciples do not have a foggy clue what is going on here Peter's thought is let's put up some tents and just Stay here on the mountain, because this is a glorious and a wonderful place. He still hasn't understood that Jesus is going to fully display his glory by going to the cross. He hasn't got that. And the decisive word from God is, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. In other words, stop making up your own stuff. And listen to what Jesus is telling you. And that episode up the mountain ends with them walking down and chatting. And one of the things that they raise is, but all of the teachers of the law say that before the Messiah comes, Elijah is going to come. And because that is what they said, indeed, based on a prophecy at the end of the Old Testament. And Jesus gives these ominous words, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. The mountain encounter has not been a huge success for the disciples. They haven't understood. Jesus underlines again that he must suffer just in the same way that John the Baptist suffered. And so we arrive in verse 14 at the bottom of the mountain and we rejoin the rest of the disciples. So let's start reading at verse 14 of Mark 9. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? he asked. 
A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. If Peter and James and John were failing to understand what was going on up the mountain, the rest of the disciples weren't having a great time in the valley either. A crowd of people have gathered around. Somebody has brought a very sick boy to Jesus in the hope that he might possibly be able to do something to help. And the disciples, in Jesus' absence, have clearly had a go at helping themselves <coughs> and have got absolutely nowhere. They can't deal with the problem. And so Jesus, um, as often seems to be the case, is coming down out of a scene of serenity and of being in the presence of God and being glorified into this hubbub in the valley of people immediately running over to him and wanting his attention. And actually the story is in Mark because it accelerates Jesus' progress to the cross. Maybe not that clear how, but it does. I'll show you later. But we, I think, can helpfully look at it under, under obviously, three headings. And I want to talk a little bit about the nature of evil from this passage, the nature of faith, and then the character of Jesus. So that's where we're going to go. And we're going to start by thinking about the nature of evil. Now, the, uh, the passage here is very clear. There is a boy, in verse 17, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. 
It seizes him and throws him to the ground. Now, when we read about evil spirits, impure spirits, demons in the New Testament, I think there are are two things we can get wrong. So, before we look at what is going on in this passage, let me just um, flag up two things, two ways we could go disastrously wrong in reading this. One way is to note that um, the description of what this spirit does to the boy sounds a lot like various medical conditions that we could name. Sounds like an epileptic fit. And we could conclude from that that whenever we see these sorts of symptoms, we are seeing demonic activity, the activity of evil spirits. I think that would be hugely wrong, not least because that is not the way the Bible presents things. Sometimes sickness is just sickness. We live in a broken world. One of the consequences of that is that our bodies and minds don't always work as they should do. It would be wrong for us to conclude from this passage or any other passage in Scripture that whenever we see these sorts of symptoms we're dealing with evil spirits. My guess is there aren't that many of us in this room who are prone to that particular error. But it happens, and it can be really, really destructive as people fail to seek appropriate medical attention because they believe that it's just a spiritual problem or get tied up with the idea that they have to engage in spiritual warfare when what they should be getting is counselling. We need to guard against that. The other thing, though, that I suspect we're much more prone to is to look at this and say, do you know what, that that looks like a seriously ill child. Probably the primitive authors of the New Testament just ascribed a medical condition to spiritual powers. And we can basically demythologize this story, strip all the spiritual stuff out of it, and say, isn't it great that Jesus healed an epileptic? And we, we like to do that because it suits us. It suits us because we live in a majority materialist culture. What I mean by that is, we basically don't believe in spiritual stuff. If we can't see it, we struggle to believe in it. And although that's out there, it also affects us in the church. I think we're very inclined to dismiss talk about spiritual beings. We find it really quite uncomfortable For starters, it sounds weird to our friends and neighbours if we talk about this sort of stuff. I think we need to get over that. This story is very clear. It was an impure spirit that was possessing this boy and manifesting in these symptoms. Jesus didn't perform a medical miracle. He drove out an evil spirit. I remember um, reading about uh, a Christian apologist called Francis Schaeffer who used to begin um, his student missions with a talk about angels. And the reason he did that was because he felt that he wanted to let the students know that Christianity wasn't just like their view of the world with a little bit extra. It wasn't just basically materialism but with God sitting somewhere above it. 
Christianity was weird. It was completely different. And we need to recognise that. The Bible paints a picture of a world which is filled with spiritual powers, some good and some evil. And if we ignore that, then we write off a large chunk of Scripture. So let's not assume that we're very, very superior to these people and that although the authors of the Gospels thought there were evil spirits, we now know that that's not the case. Um, That would be extraordinarily smug and I would suggest, very foolish of us. Okay, so let's not do either of those things. Let's be discerning. Let's be, to a certain extent, agnostic when we come across things like this as to where the medical dimension ends, where the spiritual dimension begins. And can I suggest, even the fact that we want to draw a sharp line between those two things puts us in conflict with Scripture. This is all somewhat by the by. The nature of evil. One of the things that's striking about the presentation of evil in the Bible is that when we think of evil, it's often an evil mastermind with an evil plan, um, a sort of a Bond villain type. But more often than not, Evil in the Bible is not that. It is just a spiteful wrecking of God's creation for no good reason at all. And I think that's what we see here. What does it profit, this evil spirit in the grand scheme of things, to ruin a boy's life and distress his family? Nothing at all. But we need to recognise that there are, there is a devil, there are evil spirits who hate God, hate his good creation and will just hit out at it when they can. There's an alarming and actually I found really disturbing scene in uh, C.S. Lewis's science fiction novel Perilandra. Uh, The main character, Ransom, has gone to the planet Perilandra, which turns out to be Venus, and um, the planet is in an unfallen state. But a a human being possessed by the devil follows him and tries to tempt the sort of Adam and Eve figures of Perilandra into sinning. And he's very clever, and he uses all sorts of schemes And Ransom has to stop him. But then there's this terrible scene where they're just sitting down together and the Eve figure is asleep and Ransom is watching over her to make sure that this devil-possessed man doesn't do anything to her. And the devil-possessed man sits opposite him and says, Ransom? 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 What? Nothing. Ransom? Ransom. A thousand times. And it's horrible because it's so mindless. And Lewis says that Ransom realised that whilst evil sometimes looked clever, it was only clever as a tool, had no love of intelligence or wit 
was happy just to play the spiteful schoolboy, petty cruelty. Why am I telling you this? We need to understand that we have spiritual enemies. It's important for us to get that. I'm going to move on to how we deal with that knowledge later on. But it's important that we understand it. And it's important that we understand that Satan's every effort is just to ruin what God has done. Insofar as he can, insofar as he is left with the ability to do it, to ruin it. Sometimes um, evil is presented in our world. Sin is presented as an attractive thing, as a kind of um, a forbidden fruit. You know where that image comes from. But actually, evil as the Bible presents it is not an attractive thing. It's the attempt to undo all the goodness of God's creation. It's a hideous, hideous thing. It's the nature of evil. There's more that we could say about it. But I want to leave it there. Because I want to talk about the nature of faith. Arguably, this story is all about faith. Um, the man runs over, um, and understandably, understandably, wastes no time in pouring out his situation to Jesus. This evil spirit is in possession of his son, and the disciples have been unable to drive it out. He needs help. Jesus' reply is striking. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? You unbelieving generation. I suspect that the main target of his rebuke is the disciples. Actually, their failure is a failure of faith, as we'll see. But beyond that, Jesus regularly comments on the fact that he looks around and sees no faith. You unbelieving generation. We saw um, right at the beginning of Mark that as well as coming to save, Jesus has come to judge. And his judgment in this situation is that they are an unbelieving people. And yet he asks them to bring the boy to him. How long has he been like this? From childhood. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Jesus says, why are you coming to me with your if you can? If you believe, everything is possible. Why is everything possible if you believe? If we were to flick forward into chapter 10 and verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. All things are possible for the one who believes. All things are possible with God. 
The boy's father replies, I do believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. I do believe that you can do this. And yet, there is that hesitation in me. I do have confidence in God's power, and yet, help me to have more confidence in God's power. See, faith is a really empty thing. People talk about faith as if it's this amazing thing. Faith is a really empty thing. The one who believes can do everything, not because faith provides him with some sort of superpower, but because God can do everything. And faith is the admission that I need God to act. Faith is turning towards God and saying, do what you can do. I can't. You can. Do what is possible for you. That's why the prayer of the boy's father is acceptable. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Because even that prayer, help me overcome my unbelief, is a recognition that I can't. But God can. It's not that it's okay to just have a little bit of faith. It's not that this father is being commended for his remaining doubt. It's just that the kind of tiny seed of faith which says, and I know that I need more faith, please give it to me, is exactly the sort of faith that taps in to the power of the God who can do everything. It is a huge, huge thing that this father is asking of Jesus. The disciples couldn't do it. This spirit has had the boy in its grip since childhood. It's understandable, isn't it, that he has some hesitation. If you can, nobody else could, but if you can, help us. But faith says, you can help me. You are able. Please help me. And do you know what? When faith finds within itself the barrier of unbelief, when it bumps up against that point where it says, if I'm honest, God, I am not sure that you can deal with this problem. It is still faith to say, now I see another need in me. Not only do I need your help to get this evil spirit out of my son, I need your help to even believe that you are able to do it. And that is an acceptable prayer to God. In many ways, that's the heart of faith. It's massively important that we be able to pray this prayer. And here's why. If we can't pray this prayer, I believe, help my unbelief, then everything will depend on how much faith we can generate. Right? Everything will depend on whether I can generate enough faith to tap into the power of God to change the world and combat evil and do good. And that puts me at centre stage. 
And that is a burden which I can't carry. I can't generate enough faith. And it's a glory that I'm not meant to ever have. It's not about my faith. It's about God and what he can do. And when I pray, I don't have enough faith, give me faith, that is what I am recognising. I'm in a helpless position. But God can do everything. Even give me the confidence that he can do everything. The nature of evil, the nature of faith, and the character of Jesus. We've seen throughout Mark so far that Jesus both judges and saves. And in this instance, he pronounces judgment and salvation on the same people. He says, You are an unbelieving generation. I'm not going to bear with you forever. Then he also says, bring the boy to me. If you can do anything, says the father, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus does take pity and does help. Jesus isn't waiting for the boy's father to crank up some more faith. Even his judgment, I believe, even the fact that he speaks harshly to the boy's father, you unbelieving generation, if you can, everything is possible to those who believe. Even those rebukes are designed to get the guy to the point of saying, then help me to believe. And there is the point where Jesus can pour in his mercy and his healing to the situation. Jesus is tender, even in his judgment, even in his rebukes to these people. He is also hugely powerful. Soon as the Spirit saw Jesus, it threw the boy down. Why? Because when evil comes face to face with Jesus, it knows that its days are numbered. As soon as Jesus rebukes the Spirit, come out of him and never enter him again, the Spirit shrieks and leaves the boy. Here's another thing that we need to get. It is important that we recognize that there is evil in the world. Evil spiritual forces in the world. But it's also hugely important to recognize none of them, not a one, can go one round with Jesus. He speaks and they're gone. So why couldn't the disciples do it? Jesus says this kind can come out only by prayer. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? What, 
what were they doing then? If they weren't praying, what were they doing? My guess is that they were trying on their own authority to order the Spirit to leave. And that won't work. They don't have any inherent power over spiritual forces. They need to pray. Because, again, prayer is faith in action. Prayer is saying, we can't do this, but God can. They needed to pray, and then the demon would have gone. Not so for Jesus. He has the inherent right as God's son and the inherent power to tell any evil spirit to get out and not come back. A little personal story which you may or may not find interesting. Um, I lived in Cambridge for a while. Um, Somebody's got to. And... um, I, was, I, li- I lived in a, a little uh, bedsit on, on Mill Road, which I'd organised. Um, well, I hadn't organised it, so my previous accommodation ran out. I had nowhere to live. Um, so that was, that was where I was. And the place reeked of evil. Now, I don't know exactly how to explain that to you. But have you ever had that experience of being somewhere and just feeling like, this isn't right. Somebody feels bad here. And there was all kinds of horrible stuff that went on. I was woken up a few times in the night by people just screaming. Couldn't tell where it was coming from. I was woken up a couple of times by um, a, a woman sobbing. Again, I think it was through another door, but couldn't quite tell. The guy who lived upstairs from me would, at all kinds of times of the day and night, just suddenly break out into long streams of profanity aimed at I don't know who or what. And uh, I spoke to a friend of mine and, uh, you know, explained the situation. He said to me, you don't know what's happened in there. You don't know the history of the place. But what you do know is that Jesus is more powerful than whatever is going on. Uh, I went home and, and just prayed. And it stopped. Now, here's the thing. You can explain that away. You can say, yeah, of course, psychologically you felt better after you prayed. The, 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 that sort of weird evil feeling that you're talking about, which is blatantly very subjective anyway, disappeared. The guy upstairs got a few better nights sleep. You can explain that away. Or, you can agree with Mark in his writing of this gospel that the name of Jesus is powerful over all evil. And we can trust in him. The point of um, me sort of dwelling on the nature of evil earlier was really, really not um, because it's good for us to dwell on the nature of evil. It's, it's not particularly. But the point is there is evil. It is scary. And a lot of it is beyond our ability to do anything whatsoever about. But Jesus is strong. He is powerful. 
Now you're probably not this week going to come up against many situations which clearly involve evil spirits. Although, can I suggest that if we had our eyes a bit more open, we probably are up against evil spiritual forces most days of the week. But that's not the point. The point is that whatever you do come up against this week, whether it's an evil spirit or your own sin or just a really difficult situation at work, the name of Jesus is powerful. Jesus is merciful to those who are afflicted by evil. He is powerful over evil forces. And he is king. And remember this. This is on the way to the cross. On the way to his death, Jesus shows that he has absolute power over evil. And so when he suffers on the cross, it is not because evil has beaten him. It is because he is taking it on where it lives and giving it a sound thrashing so that we can live in confidence that our good King Jesus is in control. Let's take that confidence into this week. I'm going to pray and then Kitty's going to lead us in worship. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the power and the compassion of your Son, Jesus. Thank you that he is Lord of all. Thank you that no evil force can stand up to him. Please would you help us this week to have confidence in him, confidence in his victory won at the cross, confidence in his ability and his willingness to help us in the situations that we face, and help us to live to his praise and glory, because we pray in his name. Amen.